Today's episode of the Sensory Friendly Solutions Podcast on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by Sensory Friendly Solutions. Discover sensory friendly solutions for daily life. To learn more, head to sensoryfriendly.net. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to episode eight of the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast. This was so much fun. This is with Dr. Winnie Dunn, or Winnie, as she <laughs> happily encouraged me to call her throughout the course of the podcast. Dr. Winnie Dunn really has an incredible bio, and it's been so rewarding for us to speak to people who have been in the industry for so long. And as Dr. Dunn put it to me, are well-seasoned in the industry. She is a distinguished professor at the University of Missouri. She's been there for three years, serving as a mentor for faculty and for students. And before that, had a historic career as a professor of the University of Kansas Medical Center. That's 36 years. That's why I use the word historic. That's such an incredible tenure. Served as the chair of one of the top-ranked programs there for 31 years. Really special. And with that, we give you Dr. Winnie Dunn. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast. This is episode eight of season one of the podcast. And on the other side of the microphone today, is the great Dr. Winnie Dunn. Dr. Winnie Dunn is the Distinguished Professor of Occupational Therapy Education at the University of Missouri in our, in our friend south of the border, the U.S. of A. And also, if I have this right, Dr. Dunn, the previous chair of the University of Kansas Medical Center for 31 years. Do I have that right? You do have that right. Wow, 31 years. I think it says in total 36 years at the University of Kansas Medical Center. I'm uh, I'm well seasoned. <laughs> well, the great thing about doing this <laughs> podcast is we've talked to so many experts in the field who have seen the field evolve. Um, yes. Dr. Carol Kranowitz, uh, Bill Wong, Corinne Gagne, these amazing folks who have seen the field evolve and have been around and are well seasoned, as you say, but that's nothing but experience. Right, right. Dr. Don, with your permission, I'm going to read a bio that I came across on the internet, and I'd like to see if this either matches your experience of the world right now and where you are in your professional life, or you can maybe correct it as we go. But I think it's interesting for folks to, to introduce their own work in their own words, but also juxtapose that with some things that I've written about you. Does, is that okay with you? Well, this will be very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people only believe half of what you hear. Yes, so. yes. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Okay, here we go. Dr. Winnie Dunn is a world-renowned expert on the ways that sensory experiences affect our everyday lives. She's studied babies to older adults to identify patterns or reactions to sensations and has published more than 100 journal articles, book chapters, and books. Her book, Living Sensationally, Understanding Your Senses, is written for the public and contains over 100 entertaining stories to illustrate how people's sensory reactions affect their relationships and daily life. She has received numerous research and teaching awards as well, and has been invited to speak throughout the world. Her work has been featured in Time Magazine, on Canadian Public Radio, in the London Times newspaper, and in Cosmopolitan magazine. In 2008, she was named the favorite author by the Pitch newspaper. She's professor and chair of the Department of Occupational Therapy Education at the University of Kansas. She lives in Kansas City with her husband, Tim Wilson. How did they do? Not bad. That is pretty, <laughs> that is pretty, um, pretty well done. I'm I'm very happy to hear all that. Okay, um, it, that's great. It clearly was written a few years ago because I'm now at the University of Missouri. So um, I think they did a great job, really okay. great job. Okay, and before we get to, to your work in your own words, before we hit record, 
we briefly spoke about the election. For those listening to the podcast, Dr. Dunn and I are recording this on election day. And for us Canadians, American election day is still very important. We're paying close attention. Tell us what it's like on the ground. It is, um, it is so uh, wrought with emotion. Mm. Um, everyone is anxious and um, excited. And um, I think the good thing about the hard period we've been through is that it has activated people. You know, democracy only works if all the citizenry uh, participate. And we are having record participation um, I wish it was because of something more positive than we got to change this. Mm. But um, nonetheless, I think when people get activated and see that they do have a role in their democracy, um, it changes the landscape. Uh, this morning um, on the news I heard in Georgia, for example, which is one of the um, states that has had really restricted and sort of uh, devious things to try to suppress the vote. And um, there's a particular um, politician that has been working really hard in Georgia. And she told us, Stacey Abrams, that 60, before the count today, the voters that will vote today, 67% of the citizenry um, in Georgia have voted. Mm. And that, that is an enormous number. I wish, I wish we had a rule like Australia does where everyone is required to vote. Um, but for America, that high of a turnout really tells me that people are really paying attention. They're, um, they're seeing that they have a voice and they're using it. And I'm really so happy to see that part of it. Yeah, I'm a big Stacey Abrams fan. And also, interestingly, you mentioned Georgia. I have an uncle who's retired U.S. Coast Guard and he's now oh, living. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And he's now living in Alabama. And it's interesting because he finds himself a fairly left-leaning person in a right-leaning state. And he said that personally, from his point of view, from on the ground, and of course you don't know unless you're there, that social tensions are pretty high in America right now. Yeah. My big fear for today and the next days after today are... um, There's been sort of tacit permission given for people to to misbehave. And um, I think there's people just primed to misbehave <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, they're, get, they're being given permission by some of the um, rhetoric. And that worries me because once that starts, it just, you know, people don't use their common sense, you know, they get sort of enraged and then their mm-hmm. behavior gets out of hand. And um, I just, I worry about, um, especially places where it's very contentious that it won't take much of a spark to uh, get people to um, a bad place. And so I, I just hope people's better angels prevail today and the next yeah. couple weeks. Yeah, well, we're really pulling for you. Obviously, what happens in America really affects us north of the border. And we many of us have family members who are who are either living south of the border or were born south of the border. So we're pulling for you. But also this year has been very difficult for you all. We'll get to the issues in, in short order, but I do want to do a little bit of a COVID check-in. As, as always seems to happen in the 21st century, all eyes are on America. Um, COVID, the election, um, maybe just, just very briefly before we get into your work, talk about what it's been like south of the border and how you're managing. Yeah, this is such a complex time, isn't it? All these things converging. Um one of my, uh, you know, I got my um, certificate in positive psychology coaching several years ago because we've done some research on coaching. And one of the things that my teacher always said was that just before a breakthrough, there were these these sort of disparate variables that kind of stirred things up. So I'm hoping that all of this yeah, yeah. is the breaking open period for the world, you know? And um, I think that the activation of people's paying attention is a good thing. Um, I feel personally a lot of cognitive dissonance because, you know, as a person who does research and teaches others to use evidence, um, I watch all the countries that have had success um, with uh, tamping down the the virus while we 
um, because we don't have a national plan and because we're relying on all these people to make decisions that um, as if people in Missouri are only going to stay in Missouri and people mm. in Kansas are only going to stay in Kansas. They're not, you know, um, our, our rates are going up. They're still this week higher than they've ever been. Um, in my city, uh, our mayor has made a, a rule that everybody has to wear masks when in public. And that has really calmed things down because there's no argument or mm -hmm. statement to be made. Like people just put their masks on, you know, when you go into the hardware store to get something or, um, you know, you go to the grocery store, people just put their masks on. Every store has a sign that says you have to have a mask. Most of them have somebody at the door monitoring people and reminding them that they can't come in without a mask. So it has really calmed the waters. But um, in general, uh, you know, we all feel this um, this angst all the time, you know, yeah. uh, even watching a movie that has like a party in it. All of us, we've all talked about, you know, we go, oh my God, <laughs> because, you know, like we can't go to a party and, you know, our first thought right now is those people are being safe. And, um, you know, it's it's just, that's crazy that right. um, that we have to be so mindful about encountering other human beings when that's part of our lifeblood is is um, interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. um, I've also been uh, struck by um, things, you know, this is, a, this is a human characteristic, like things have been available to us for a long time. For example, all this technology, you know, we, we have the opportunity to have meetings like this for five years, maybe 10 sure. years. And we never did it. I mean, we did it once in a while, sure. but now because we're being pushed into it, we're finding out that there are topics and situations where that's a better choice. We're finding out that uh, giving students projects to really make them think deeply about a subject matter and solve a problem is a much more engaging way to teach. And we had that opportunity to do that before and some of us did it and some of us did not. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are some um, companies are seeing that people can be equally productive with a flexible schedule. Um, companies are rising to the challenge of finding um, uh, education and daycare options for their employees, um, giving them flex time. There's things that they could have done all along that um, make people feel valued. And I wish it wouldn't have to be a crisis like this to do it, but you know, this, this virus has invited us. I did a talk last week um, for New Zealand and I said, what if mother nature is nudging us yes. to be more equitable, you know, to be more reasonable with each other by this um, extreme action. <laughs> and I, I just think that um, I'm, I, I have my days, you know, I, um, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, gentleman in Moscow. By, I loved it. Oh, Amor totally. I mean, he's yes, like, Amor Tolles, yep. he, um, I, I think about that gentleman in Moscow because, you know, mm -hmm. he was, if people haven't read it, they, he was confined to this tiny little boutique hotel in, in, uh, Moscow as a punishment during the Bolshevik revolution. And, he could have been bitter and pissy and angry. And he created a full, beautiful, substantial life inside of the walls of that boutique mm -hmm. hotel. And so frequently during this, um, cause I, I, you know, I'm in a privileged place. You know, I have a beautiful home. I have, it's an old house and it has, um, uh, servants quarters on the third floor, which of course we've never had servants. So I have my office up here so I can get dressed and go to the office. I can go back downstairs mm -hmm. and have a rest. I can, you know, I, I can like create a, a, a ritual of the day um, inside these walls. And I think if I hadn't read gentlemen in Moscow, I wouldn't have been able to access that substance of you get to decide what your life is like. So I'm not saying this isn't horrible. Um, I, I, I can't imagine a family member dying where you cannot mm. see them or be with them. Mm. I mean, it, it just, it just kills me. Yeah. Um, one of my, one of my best friends is 
works in a um, nursing home uh, facility where there's a cascade of care. And it's just heartbreaking, the, mm. the, the things the families are going through. Um, yeah. And to have people in our government act like that doesn't matter. Um, you know, it is what it is. And some of the crass comments is just, it just is infuriating. So I just said a whole range of emotions about one little thing. <laughs> no, it's it's the perfect starter for this conversation because, and it's funny you mentioned a gentleman in Moscow because I've actually recommended it to many. We didn't have very long, um, strict lockdowns on the East Coast of Canada. In fact, we have one of the, the lowest transmission rates on the planet right now, which is great. And I hope we keep that up. It's not true of Ontario and Quebec, but... It is true of the East Coast. And so I've recommended that because you're exactly right. This is a time when when we all have to dig deep and we're, we're certainly in this together. And first and foremost, it's a healthcare crisis. But like you mentioned, it's um, it's a time for us to rethink some things and some of those imbalances that we've struck. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up to you, and I was going to save this for the end of the conversation, but now is the right time. Our relationship to information um, as of June 2020th, Sensory overload was being searched over 40,000 times a month on Google. Now, the most important thing about that stat is the trend line. That's an increase of 50% from 2019 on Google Trends. Wow. So so how do you interpret that, Winnie? Um, we've asked many of our guests to, to kind of just wax on this, but is, there, is our is. relation to information and media totally out of whack? Well, you know, I have... You know, it's, it, um, I, I'm filled with deep sadness that that many people need to know about this, um, in the terms of sensory overload, but I'm also, um, it makes me so happy that, um, I perhaps have contributed to people knowing to ask that question, you know, like, um, the the thing about sensory processing and and um it, it, it is like a fundamental feature of the human experience like we our brains don't know anything if they don't know it from our senses that's the only way it's the only mm -hmm. way we know anything and um because it's so fundamental uh, people tend to look over it because they don't you know it's so organic to who we are we don't we don't notice and the fact that people are searching sensory overload tells me that they understand that their senses have something to do with this and the good news for me um when i speak with others is that we can do something to, we can do something about a tangible thing you know like something being too noisy or too scratchy or too slimy or too bright like mm -hmm. we can take an action based on understanding that our senses are getting overloaded. Mm -hmm. And that sense of being able to take an action helps us feel more, it's, it's a step towards feeling more in control. And when we feel more in control, you know, we, we have a sense of calm. I can figure this out. I can do something to help myself. I can make it better for my son. Um, we, we have a sense of um, our humanity is in our hands that way. The ambiguity of just saying I'm overloaded or I'm overwhelmed or I'm anxious or I'm depressed. Like those words, they're big words, but they don't tell us what to do. And I think one of the greatest gifts that knowledge about sensory processing has given the, the people who know about it is the idea that they can understand themselves, they can understand their family members, their coworkers, and they can um, add grace to the story. You know, you don't, mm. you can understand somebody and not make a judgment. You can, um, you can take an action in their behalf. You know, you can take your child that's overwhelmed to another room and nobody will judge you for you know, having a bad kid, you just say, you know, this is too noisy for him right now. We're going to go in the other room for a minute. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. Or um, I, I just think that having an action to take um, helps us feel like we're in charge of ourselves. And that sense of being in charge helps us calm down. Overwhelmed means 
things are happening to us and we can't do anything about it. It's like visually for me, it's like getting bowled over, you know, like falling backwards and having all this, whatever it is, mm. rolling over me and, and having control means that I can either stand up to it or turn my back to it. You know, I can walk away and do something different. I can change the circumstance I'm in. I can adapt the activity that I'm doing. I can decide something on my behalf. So um, I hope that when they search, they're finding evidence-based information, yeah. um, you know, and not just goofy stuff that mm. sounds cute, but doesn't really, doesn't really ground itself in the evidence that we, of what we know is true about people's sensory patterns. Yeah. Do you think 2020 has been the perfect storm and has created mm -hmm. that 50% increase because of this yeah. idea of control? I mean, there's never been less of a sense of control than in a time when the air itself could be detrimental to your health and touching people right. could be detrimental to your health. Have we do, we, do we crave knowing what to do and control? And then when we don't have it, we get overwhelmed. Yeah, I think that's true. I do think that's true. And I think that, you know, people have always gotten overwhelmed, but I think that the thing about sensory features of being overwhelmed is that we can do something you know yeah. if i'm overwhelmed with too much to do at work you know somebody has might have to help me figure out what's the next step um annie lamott i don't know if you've read any of her books but yeah. she wrote a book called bird by bird um and one of the stories part of the story was about her growing up and um, her brother was trying to do a um, a paper he had to talk about all the bird species must have been it must have been like um, biology or something and um he couldn't get started like he just kept sitting there and he couldn't get started and this and the dad said son you have to go bird by bird mm. and i use that phrase for myself a lot you know what would my next step be what what's the next bird um to sort of break it down but that's a cognitive strategy um, that people don't always have access to either. Um, yeah. we're going to get to strategy towards the end of the show, some of your personal strategies, but if we could, can we trace your career arc a little bit? Can we dig into a bit of the inspiration <laughs> for this, for this well-seasoned career you've had? Oh my gosh. It's so, you know, um, I, I've, uh, you know, I turned 70 this year and, uh, and, uh, I've have come to have a phrase in my in my lexicon that I didn't have before called um, in my lifetime, mm. uh, because sometimes, you know, when people get discouraged that we're not making progress, you know, because day to day things can feel like, oh, my God, that that rule's never going to change, you know, and um, I've looked back in the last few years at, you know, when I started being an occupational therapist, children didn't get to go to school. Yeah, that they had severe disabilities mm. and girls didn't get to play sports and we didn't have all the vaccines we have today um we didn't have some of the some of the strategies for uh, people that have hearing impairments like when you look big we were horrified we're horrified today if a child isn't in this neighborhood school and back then children were in institutions you know, um, so so this idea of what my career looks like, you know, me telling it from this vantage point is very different than me living it going forward, you know. Um, so when I look back, I see patterns. But when I look forward, I see willingness. You know, when I started um, as an occupational therapist, I, I lived in Missouri and Missouri had a special education law before the federal government in, in America had one. And so um, I was able to get hired by an, um, a public school because I had a master's degree in special education um, in a brand new field called learning disabilities. <laughs> and um, the fact that I was an OT was a bonus, you know, because OTs only worked in institutions and segregated schools and places like that. So here I was, you know, just beginning my career. And this is a pattern I see now, but I, at the time I didn't know it was going to be a pattern, you know, that willingness to go into a setting and use those skills as an occupational therapist 
um, to make that place better in a way that no other regular public education school could do because they didn't have any occupational therapists there. Um, and so my career is marked by that, um, that sort of uh, willingness to be adventurous and willingness to ask questions and willingness to change my mind when I got new information, which is something I've seen as really hard for professionals. We seem to think that we have to have one idea and then hold on to it with a death grip. Mm -hmm. You know, whoever thought your first idea was your best idea, right? Like right. it doesn't make sense, but we still do it. And so I, um, you know, through my career, I worked in public schools. I, um, I uh, went to school while working. Um, I started some preschool programs in, in rural areas so the families didn't have to travel to the city for their children to get special services like um, occupational therapy or speech therapy. Um, I, um, I did all those kinds of entrepreneurial things, um, just forging a path. Um, I, what I know now is that my roots you know, OTs care about people's routines in their everyday lives. They care about people having a satisfying day and a satisfying week and a, a well-seasoned um, set of recreational activities. And, and so what I see in my career is that I kept working in authentic places. I worked in public education. Mm. I created these preschool programs in these rural areas. I, while I worked on my PhD, I, I always cared about the places where people inhabited, not the places that we professionals create for them, like clinics and hospitals. And I know people have to go to the hospital um, and we're all glad to have them there, but the core of OT is about living. And so when I look back on my career, I see that I kept choosing authentic places. Um, and that's, I think, why I have such a clear sense about the contribution that I can make as an OT. Um, but I also know that having a special ed background gave me some tools that other OTs didn't have. And then I, I my PhD is in neuroscience. And um, again, it was a program that wasn't developed yet. I was in the first graduating class of the OT program. Oh, wow. At Mizzou. Um, I was also in the first graduating class of the special education uh, learning disabilities stream at Mizzou. And then when I, you know, several years later, when I went and got my neuroscience, um, applied neuroscience degree, my PhD at, um, at Kansas, uh, they were trying to develop an interdisciplinary PhD, which was unheard of at the time. And they were experimenting with neuroscience because it's by its nature, it's interdisciplinary. And so I was the, I was with uh, one other woman when the first graduates of that developing program. <laughs> do you see a pattern? I do. The pioneer. <laughs> like what? I mean, at the time I didn't think about it, but when I look back, I'm like, oh my goodness, like that, that sense of um, adventure and that sense of willingness to forge some territory, to be curious about something. Um, it, it's very, very telling um, so authentic environments and adventurous, um, willing decision-making, mm. I guess would be phrases I would use. That's um, the theme. Yeah. They, um, the, the, um, you know, there's people like when I was on one of my field works in OT, I had, I was in a segregated school cause that's what they had back then. And these teachers and therapists were so um, they were just so dedicated to the children and they were so ambitious about finding a way no matter what, you know, and they, um, they did things like back then people thought teaching children to sign would um, keep them from talking, mm. but they would, you know, to keep kids from getting frustrated, they would teach the kids very simple signs like more and potty and yes and no. And, drink and they would sort of sneak the signs because you know it was it was not you know a, a practice that uh that was sanctioned at the time and and they <laughs> but they would see if it helped you know they they um they would see if it helped a kid and if it did they kept going and if it didn't they changed and i learned a lot from that you know i learned that you gotta try stuff you mm -hmm. gotta be willing to see the good and the 
and the failures in your choices and be humble enough to move on, um, either make it bigger or stop doing it. And that really has helped me in my career to just be willing, to just be willing to say, that's the best I could do right then. And now I see more information and I have a new idea or I have an enhanced idea or I have a, a different direction for my ideas. Yeah. You seem to have made a career of getting into emerging markets and emerging fields. Um, <laughs> compare and contrast to now, what are you focusing on and thinking about in 2020 and, and maybe a little bit about how the field has changed? Well, you know, you talked at the beginning about my sensory processing background and, you know, creating an assessment that's um, the sensory profile, which is used around the world. And um, but but lately in the last decade or so, you know, um, some kinds of research don't get done because they're hard to do. And and in my profession, uh, people were had been reluctant to try intervention research because it's just hard mm-hmm. and it takes funding and um, people weren't as sophisticated because our profession is younger. And uh, so I, um, because I really want people to understand that sensory processing isn't an end to itself. It's a way to understand people so that we can help them make their lives more successful and satisfying. You know, it's not, it's, it's a piece of information that helps us do better. Um, it's not the end by itself. And, and so I, I started, th- you know, I started looking at um, evidence-based intervention practices. And so that's when I got the positive psychology coaching um, training and certificate. And we've done several studies about, using coaching practices they've been shown to be really effective in business in education in social systems um and so uh i we use that the evidence to create some ways to do it in ot and um and then we added on to that uh telehealth practices because we have Mm -hmm. in the midwest here in america we have a lot of people um, that live in rural areas that like are one or more hours away from care. And so um, the, the cost of uh, getting there and getting back or having the family travel that far, it just wasn't, um, it just wasn't practical. And so those families weren't getting the care they needed. And it's ironic because in my first part of my career, I helped create these rural practices. <laughs> so families didn't have to travel, you know, um, so the studies that we've done have shown that coaching is a really satisfying, um, way to practice your profession. And it's so satisfying for the families because they feel like we're empowering them to, to solve a problem and come up with an idea. And we keep standing with them until they find the right one. It makes them feel so strong and so happy to understand how to parent their child. Um, and telehealth, these families that live one or two hours away, can you imagine them getting a kid that needs care in a car with a sibling, driving one and a half hours for one hour of care, and then driving back, you know, with all the going potty and the eating and the car behaviors and everything else? Like, if we, how could we think that that would be helpful to a family? Um, you know, whatever magical benefit we did would be undone before and after that that moment you know so the families are so grateful to have one hour of care and be done you know they don't have to clean up their house because somebody's coming to visit they don't have to get their kids in the car um it costs about um a third less to uh, to provide care that way also And so um, that's what I've been doing lately. You know, I see sensory processing knowledge as a tool to help us do the other things we do better. And so we can talk to families, you know, well, he's sensitive to sound. So how's it going to be when he goes to grandma's house? Mm. You know, what's it like there? Um, You know, what are some things you can do to manage that? Um, How are you going to handle it if he starts to get overloaded? What what are you going to do next? how are you going to talk to your mom about this? So she understands what's going to happen when you get to her house. Like it's so 
it, it makes the families feel like we get them. It makes the families feel like we're listening and it makes them feel so smart about parenting their child. Like what could be better? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what other things would be more satisfying than that kind of work. Absolutely, Dr. Dunn. For our listeners, we want to make sure that that we're not only talking about tactics and tools and strategies, but we also want to give a comprehensive list of resources. Um, are there any resources that you've penned personally or that you've really enjoyed that that not only parents, but families, but individuals can access? Well, I did write a book for the public. I felt really strongly mm-hmm. um, a number of years ago that we need to normalize this. We need to quit talking about sensory processing as if it's a disease or a disability or a deficit. I mean, I'm all over, I'm done with all the bad words. I, uh, people have heard me talk about this. I, I feel like we have to quit making a judgment about people's characteristics. Mm. You know, people, I learned some of this from adults with autism, you know, they are who they are. They're, they don't, they're not, they're not damaged goods. They're, they're interesting people that have something to contribute. And that's true for every single person. And we have done a disservice, all of us professionals, by acting like we get to decide that this or that characteristic of a human being is unacceptable. And so um, <laughs> I feel like we have to, um, we have to talk about being a human being. And so that's what living sensationally does. It's, mm. it's talking about sensory processing in a way that, that your mom and your aunt and your uncle and um, everybody in your neighborhood can understand. It has lots of stories about people um, giving illustrations of how your sensory patterns show up in your everyday life and what you can do about it, how you can make adjustments in service to be um, to feel fine about the that you need to pull the shades down because it's too bright, that that's just the way you need your environment to be. There's no judgment about it. There's no, um, you know, thinking you're weird. It's just you being empowered because you know what you need. And so um, I've had, you know, lots of people that that book has been translated into many languages and um, it's, it seems from the feedback I get to be really helpful to people to feel like they're, they're in the, they're in there, you know, their kids yeah. in there, everybody they know is in there and it, and it makes it okay. You know, like we got to stop, we got to stop acting like um, something's wrong. Mm. Um, a, a book, I, a public book I read just lately that um, I think is good for our times is called together by Vivek. Murphy. Mm. Um, he was one of the um, Surgeon Generals um, in our country. And it's about his, his discovery and talking to people. One of his things was to go out and talk to people um, to find out what he needed to do as the Surgeon General of our country. And he saw that this idea of people feeling lonely, even when other people were around, not knowing how to connect with each other or connecting in these surface ways without having that human sense of connection. And, you know, I, I feel that book has been, um, I've thought about it a lot in COVID <laughs> because it yeah. gives you a sense of how to really connect with people in a deep way, even though we have, um, been restricted from the typical ways it makes us you know he one of his arguments is that we make it makes us think more deeply about how we're going to connect with people and be more mindful about it not just let it happen spontaneously but you know how we reach out to others and how we um honor what our loneliness is telling us to do and how that this this sense of togetherness is one of the most healthy um behaviors we can engage in so that doesn't that doesn't have anything to do specifically with sensory processing but i think people that are more easily overwhelmed can feel lonely quicker and so having strategies you know like connecting with somebody um by zoom or making sure you text people and um just using the other tools that we have available to feel connected to other people um and, and there's a, there's lots of writing right now. Um, it's some, for some people it's controversial for me, it's like, um, 
finally um, autobiographies of people that have had disabilities and mm. differences mm. and um, listening carefully to what they say their lived experiences. Um, the New York Times put out a book of all the essays that people wrote in the disability section of their um, people part of their of their newspaper and it's it's just essays of um uh what everybody's experiences are what it's like to um have a, a prosthetic what it's like to um have deafness what it's like to um have cerebral palsy you know as an adult living a full life you know i think that we at least in my age group, I don't know about your experience, but, you know, we were taught to segregate people mm. by these characteristics. And I feel like in the future, we need to think more carefully about what people with different experiences have to say. Mm. You know, the irony, um, Matthew, is that <laughs> I start, when I started working on sensory processing and research, of course, what we all do, we start testing people with disabilities because they have a more intense version of the experience, right? So they're more sensitive or they're more avoidant or they, they miss more cues. And so it's easy to see, you know, of course, it's easy to see. So I would do these studies and I'd go out and start talking about it. And somebody would come up to me at the break and say, my husband does that. You know, mm. my neighbor does that, mm. you know, and, or I do that, you know, like people that otherwise would have called themselves typical human beings are saying, you know, that quirky thing you just talked about, I, I do that. Right. You know, my husband's really picky about the damn socks he wears, you know, like, <laughs> what, like he only buys one brand and they quit making them. I don't know what to do, you uh -huh. know, like those practical things. And so it dawned on me, um, that this is about all of us. You know, the, the, the gift that people with conditions like autism have given us is by showing us what it looks like in a more intense version of maybe the version that we have. And that makes it easier for us to talk about because we can see the, the terrain of it. We can see the topography of it. But that being said, um, in, you know, I did some population studies because I wanted to show people like, Children and adults that we would call typical, that have never been diagnosed, that have nothing going on, that we would put a label on, also have like intense sensory experiences. Mm -hmm. They have the same scores on the sensory profile as a kid with autism or a kid with ADHD or an adult with schizophrenia, the same scores. And they, they, um, they're living a full life. You know, we can't say that those things are a disability or a deficit when all of us in the, in the bell curve of human beings have something of it. Right. Sure. So it, um, you know, like if you took, if you put, if you plotted all my characteristics on the bell curve, I'd be all over, you know, yeah. I'd be really high on some stuff. I'd be really low on some stuff. I'd be in the middle on some stuff. So which one are you going to pick to decide if Winnie's acceptable, you know? Mm. And the truth is Winnie is complicated. You're complicated. Mm -hmm. We're all these, um, one of my favorite old quotes, uh, it's from an English biologist. He said, um, if the brain were so simple that we could understand it, we would be so simple that we couldn't. <laughs> there you go. You know, so the, the fact that we that we have to keep grappling with this, that we have to keep talking about it, you know, that we have to keep explaining it to each other and, and thinking more about it is the very nature of what incredible beings we are. Mm. And um, I ask families, for example, like, what is your favorite thing about Jason? And, you know, on, the sad thing is that some a lot of professionals wouldn't ask that so they they know what they love about him but nobody's ever asked so they kind of get tongue-tied for a moment but they love that this literal kid is funny you know that he takes everything literally and it is hilarious mm. it reminds us how bad our language is you know they they um they, they love the interesting parts. We, um, one of my doctoral students came in one day, um, we were talking about his dissertation and he was lamenting because he'd just um, seen a family, a, a mom that had a kid 
with autism at her home. And um, he said, Winnie, you know, I felt so bad. You know, she was talking about how she can't tell any stories about her son that has autism because everybody thinks he's making fun, that she's making fun of him. So he and I started brainstorming and what came out of that conversation is something that's we're now in our seventh year, I think it's called an evening with the rents and rents as parents. <laughs> and um, we had we um, this young man is very resourceful. So we found some uh, stand up comedians like professional stand up comedians here in Kansas City. There was a guy in Chicago that also had a kid with autism. So he volunteered to help us. And we took a year. And uh, we got, um, I think, eight parents the first year. Um, and they coached them. They told their funny stories about their kids. And then these stand-up comedians coached them um, until they could tell the story in a way that would be stand-up comedy format. You know, like, take mm -hmm. this part out, lengthen this part, pause here, mm -hmm. you know, raise your eyebrows, you know, all the little techniques. And so we had a fundraiser called, we have a fundraiser called Evening with the Rents where parents, and now the last two years we've had actually adults with autism stand up, do a stand up comedy routine. And it's a whole evening of people doing stand up comedy, telling stories about their family members or themselves that have autism. Oh, that's wonderful. And it is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a, you know and we talk about it at the very beginning you know this is a this is a, a guilt-free judgment-free zone these are this is the truth about the lived experience in these families and we we embrace and cherish all of them you know yeah. but to me that's what our future needs to look like is this this uh big big thinking about what each every person has to contribute and mm. You know, asking you, for example, what's something that you don't like about yourself and how is it helpful to you? You know, mm -hmm. like um, I, um, I'm really uncoordinated. Like when I was standing in line, I didn't get much of that. Um, what that has taught me, what I call it my uber strength, is persistence. Because yeah. I, first of all, I get to decide if I want to do something or not. But secondly, if I decide I want to do something... I stick with it and figure it out. It took me seven months, literally. I know you think I'm exaggerating, but it <laughs> took me seven months to do a, a pose in yoga called Ardha Chandrasana, which is uh, called Flying Half Moon Pose. And it's standing on one foot and your body is parallel to the ground and your arms are up and down. And I, um, you know, of course, all the little dancers and athletes in my yoga class could just pop right in. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I had to stand. I literally stood on the wall with my butt cheek on the wall every day, you know, just to give myself enough stability that I could sense internally what I was feeling in that position, you know, so that I had a really clear body map of what was required of this pose. And that's an, that's an example of all the things that I've done in my life with this uber strength of persistence because my uncoordination required it of me, mm. you know? So we have to quit disparaging like a person that's highly sensitive to sensation Yeah, because their high sensitivity also means they notice mood changes. It means they notice things in the world and paint it. And we wouldn't have noticed it. And we're so grateful to see their painting. You know, it means that they might be discerning fabric makers because they know what a smooth fabric is actually feeling like. Mm. And we are all the beneficiaries of those quirky things. You know, we're all the beneficiaries. We have to stop acting like there's something wrong. Yeah, with that. Certainly. You know? Winnie, final question. You've been so generous with your time. It's a strange moment right now. We're talking about sensory friendly solutions. So we want to leave our listeners with this final question, this final thought from you. What are your what are your personal strategies to reduce the noise of the current era? What are you what are you doing day to day that keeps it whole? I'm so glad you're asking that because you know we all have to pay attention to this right now, don't we? Yeah. Um I have really set my mind to more doing. Um, 
more, uh, you know, I love to cook. So all the verbs in the kitchen, chopping and smelling and stirring and um, tasting and experimenting. You know, um, I've uh, done a lot of reading. I, I got back, you know, OTs um, back in the day when I went to school, we had to learn lots of crafts and things. So I've been knitting and crocheting. I dance um, by myself in my house <laughs> with the music. Um, there was a guy on uh, Instagram that was having a dance party every afternoon for 30 minutes. And I did that. Um, uh, my husband and I, my family had a, um, a challenge, a, uh, a video challenge where we had to each post a video of us uh, dancing to some music. And we, we did this huge production uh, <laughs> um, that had, he had lights and, you know, <laughs> flashers. And I mean, it was crazy lip syncing. Um, but I also, you know, just finding new ways to, um, to play, you know, I, I, um, I have a piano and I'm not good at playing the piano, but I'm really clear with myself. I'm not good at singing either but it isn't about how it sounds to you or how it looks to you. It's how it feels to me, you know, so mm. singing and playing the piano and, you know, just having time to um, think about things. I've also limited who I, you know, what, well, how much news I watch. Yeah. I, um, I have certain um, commentators that are, that feel more authentic in the way they talk and they have like conversations like we're having with their guests. You know, instead of like, they have like real conversations. And so I really only watch those. Um, I, um, this is, uh, I dress up every day. I put jewelry on and come upstairs to work. I mean, like I, a couple of days, I know a lot of people just stay in their yoga pants or stay in their Mm. whatever. I just, Uh, it got me really depressed and anxious. So I get an outfit out, I get dressed, I put on my jewelry, people tease me on to the, like they're looking for what my accessories are today. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so I do that. I also, um, all of my passwords are, I mean, they're still, they're still strong, but they all are an affirmation. Oh, wow. So I figured out a way for every, password to be an affirmation of some sort, either with initials and combinations of numbers, but it always is an affirmation so that when I have to type it, um, it's a, it's like a brief reminder, you know, that you're okay. You're great. You're good. You're funny, whatever it is. Um, and that has, you know, sometimes we think about all these big things, like we're missing a big vacation, you know, but the truth is, the everyday routines are the richness of your life, you know, like find yeah. ways to insert. So, so having to write those affirmations when I <laughs> type my passwords is uh, ironically, you know, a really good, a really good thing. Um, yeah. I also have found, um, looked for immersive stories um, or series like on Netflix or, th- you know, those kind of streaming services where there's eight episodes and you have to wonder what's going on. And it sort of takes you out of what you're in uh, right now. My husband and I've been watching foreign ones uh, because we really have to pay attention to read the subtitles and we can't be doing anything else. It It gets us focused on being there together and watching the film and Sometimes we have to go back because the the um, subtitle goes away faster <laughs> than I can read. But but like that, do you see how that just takes all your cognition and you don't sure. have anything left for the other stuff? So those are some of the things I've been doing. Well, Winnie, that's fantastic. And we thank you so much for being a part of the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast. I feel lucky to have spoken to you on election day, although this will come out a week from now and we're really hoping for everyone south of the border for peaceful and engaged election night and um thank you again for being a part of this meaningful project we love speaking oh to you my gosh thank you so much for inviting me this was really fun i appreciate it so much well we're glad to hear it thank you so much dr dunn be safe be well okay you be sensational awesome thank you thank you winnie bye-bye 
Hello, listeners. Welcome back. The reflection segment of episode eight of the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast. We have Crystal again in the hot seat. Crystal, welcome. Hi, Matt. How are you? It's Friday afternoon. It is. Yes, it is. It's a. It's been a. It's been a good week. It's been a, a busy week. Yeah. Good. So we reached Dr. Winnie Dunn from Missouri. She she very politely asked me to call her Winnie throughout the course of the conversation. We had a great time. Before we get into the content, I thought it was actually pretty special that we reached her. We happened to reach her on election day in America. You and I are on the east coast of Canada, but obviously we pay very close attention to our brothers and sisters south of the border. So it was interesting that we reached her on that pivotal day. Yes, and such what a time to um, be talking about just uh, all the feelings, right? And the, the information mm. coming at us um, and the, the, the feeling of, of overload and of being a little uh, overly stimulated by the news and having lots of anxiety and worry about that. Um, it was interesting, Dr. Dunn, Winnie started um, her chat uh, with you just with a bit of a perspective that at such a, you know, I, she, she started with hope. She started and finished with hope. And mm-hmm. so she started with, you know, this perspective that at a, at a complex time, right, at what we're experiencing, having to, to go through an, an election during a, during a pandemic and a time of great uncertainty. Uh, but she, she sort, of, sort of gave this anticipation that uh, complex times are often followed by great breakthroughs. Uh, that... Uh, complexity in the world activates people together and we start paying attention to different things and that hmm. we also talked about in that vein we talked about how control can overwhelm us or lack thereof and one thing I highlighted while I was writing my notes for the episode when we talked about there's been a theme throughout the course of the podcast where we've been trying to give name to certain things. And we actually have talked to many people, um, I would say three at a minimum, four at the most, who actually have been pioneers at a time when this was an emerging field. As Dr. Dunn said, she's she's well-seasoned, she said, which I thought yeah, was so Yeah, good. it's so lovely. But we get to talk to people who have been in this industry for a long time. And what she said about this aspect of naming things is, it's human nature that we can only act on something if it's tangible. Yeah. What we're lacking right now is is knowing what to do, is, is our lack of sense of control over the current moment. And she spoke really intelligently about how they're experiencing that firsthand in a really unique way in America. Yeah. Yeah. She talked about the, the next step being the ability to take action. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that without that sense of uncertainty, that sense of unknowing, that sense of confusion uh, is is challenging. But that with um, information and I sort of I found that um, that interesting how that tied in a, a bit to our conversation last week with Stella Waterhouse is that we still need to provide good knowledge. Dr. Dunn talked about the importance of evidence-based information, that there's there's a flood of information out there, um, everyone sharing everything all of the time. Uh, but as, as Stella spoke to last week, uh, there's still a need to to focus that and 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 why we're having you know these conversations with people. Uh, yeah, sensory overload is being searched uh, thousands, tens of thousands of time a month. But these deep dives are still important. We still need to direct people, uh, provide guidance, uh, knowledge, so that they can take action, that they can take the next step and have the information that they need um, to to move forward. Uh, Dr. Dunn talked about um, just with her career path mm-hmm. and her her sense of discovery, the ability to change her mind with new information, the ability to mm-hmm. change what she does with new information. And I think in, in, in 
in sensory processing, in dealing with sensory challenges and trying to find sensory solutions, that ability to persist, uh, to glean and learn new information and then, and then change what you do is incredibly powerful. Yeah, you mentioned episode seven of the podcast with Stella Waterhouse, and we've just recently released a full blog post on that episode. We managed to reach Stella just days before a federally mandated lockdown in the UK that will last until December 2nd. And so we talked about the effects of that and obviously getting the input of the UK cohort and the American cohort is really unique because we're not experiencing that on the East Coast of Canada. But I wanted to bring us back to Stella just for a minute because Stella was also in the vanguard when this was an emerging field. And as an industry outsider, um, new to the industry, knowing that an emerging field evolves as it goes. I mean, we're talking to Dr. Dunn, who has had not only before, even before her tenure at the University of Missouri, a 36-year post at another university. And so the depth of that understanding, and I asked them both, is how has the field changed and evolved now it isn't an emerging field, or maybe it is, but I wanted to get your input on this idea of we've spoken to lots of folks who are there as the vanguard in a really emerging field. Now it's getting into the public consciousness a little bit. We're here in 2020. Do you ever think about that? I mean, you started in 96. Yeah. Do you ever think about yeah. that, that the fact that this has become mainstream now in some ways? Very much so. Um, I I remember uh, sitting in, in university and... Um, Many years ago, not 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 quite. I don't quite have the longe- longevity of of Stella or Winnie, but certainly long enough. And w- we had one course on sensory processing, one, and it was presented as a little bit as this newfangled thing that you know they were gracefully going to allow a teaching assistant to talk to us about because it was very important to this teaching assistant who had studied in California uh, and she presented um, and that that was that was that and and now you know we're at a place where uh, Dr. Dunn is sharing uh, the insights and perspective that hey we you know we all do quirky things some mm-hmm. people show us a more intense version and uh, you know she really uh, adopted a principle of uh, love the quirky love your quirks. It's not something to be, she used the word disparaged, right? Um, Celebrate it. It makes you, you. We've talked about that, uh, you know, as well. What makes you, you um, find, find strength in that uh, as a solution. Yeah. I loved how she ended the podcast with a note to our listeners, be sensational. And that comes from a really, really cleverly titled book, which she wrote in 2007 called Living sensationally where she tells these stories of our quirks and we actually feature that book in our upcoming innovation segment. Crystal, um, we had a long episode this week uh, in an effort to preserve our timing, to respect the time of our listenership. Let's get maybe one final reflection from you if you have one. Yeah. Um, It's the one thing I'm just looking at my notes, Matt, that I have highlighted uh, and so along the lines of uh, being, we're, we're sensory beings, human beings are sensory beings and processing, we have to look at processing our senses. It's fundamental to who we are and what we do. And it's a tool to do other things better. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the final segment of episode eight of the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast with the great Dr. Winnie Dunn. This is the stage of the podcast that you have written in to tell us you're really enjoying. We give you the tips, the tactics, the tools, the strategies, the resources to better navigate the current time, to live a good life, to live a sensory friendly life. And this innovation segment is no different. In fact, It's excellent because we get to draw off of the wonderful mind of another industry leader. 
from Dr. Winnie Dunn. This is her book, Living Sensationally. If you notice at the very end of our conversation, she signed off by saying, be sensational. And it didn't occur to me at the time, but it's in reference to her book called Living Sensationally, Understanding Your Senses. Now, this was published in 2007, but has stood the test of time. You can get this on Amazon. You can get this on her website. It has a really fun description on Amazon, and I'm going to read it for you. How do you feel when you bite into a pear? Wear a feather boa? Stand in a noisy auditorium? Or look for a friend in a crowd? Living Sensationally explains how people's individual sensory patterns affect the way we react to everything that happens to us throughout the day. Some people will adore the grainy texture of a pear, while others will shudder at the idea of this texture in their mouths. Touching a feather boa will be fun and luxurious to some, and others will bristle at the idea of all those feathers brushing on the skin. Noisy, busy environments will energize some, and will overwhelm others. Armed with the information and living sensationally, people will be able to pick just the right kind of clothing, job, and home, and know why they are making such choices. What I love about it, it's a chance for us to better understand ourselves as this podcast has been from the very get-go. She also mentions some really fascinating individuals in American culture right now. We happen to record the podcast episode on election day in America, which is fascinating within and of itself. She talks about Stacey Abrams from Georgia, who's done some great podcasts that I encourage you to check out. She talks about Vivek Murthy, who is a former surgeon general of America. His recent book called together on loneliness, a loneliness epidemic. It was a fascinating discussion. Pick up these resources. Understand yourself a little bit better. Check out Dr. Winnie Dunn further, and we'll see you next week for episode nine of the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast. Thank you to our sponsor, Taking It Global, ensuring that youth around the world are actively engaged and connected in shaping a more inclusive, peaceful, and sustainable world. As part of their Rising Youth Initiative, they're looking for young people who are inspired with ideas and ready to take action through youth-led community service grants. Head to risingyouth.ca to learn more and to become the next Rising Youth grant recipient. The podcast is also supported by New Brunswick Community College as part of the Community Resource Awareness During and After COVID-19 Applied Research Project funded by the New Brunswick Innovation Foundation. Learn more about NBCC's efforts to transform lives and communities at nbcc.ca. The Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast is produced by me, Matt George, is engineered by the great Zachary Pelche, and is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.